Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Stacey Raines teaches English at St. James Academy. She has also taught, where else have you taught? Um, my first year of teaching was at St. Michael the Archangel. I taught middle school religion, and then um, I just went in the convent for two years Okay. Um, with the Sisters of Immaculate Heart of Mary in Wichita. Um, and then I did almost six years of youth ministry before coming back to teaching. Wow, that is quite the background, actually. That's really cool. Well, I respect Stacy deeply for many reasons, including her artistic sensibility. Stacy writes beautifully, she paints, she sings, she gardens, and she engages in many other artistic pursuits. I think it'd be fair to say that Stacy is preoccupied with beauty and wants to add beauty everywhere she goes in the world. What a lovely thing to say about someone. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. Um, well, today we're going to discuss three books that have been pivotal in her life, books that changed who she is. Mm -hmm. So, hey, Stacy, thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. Okay, so we're going to discuss, how do you pronounce it, Deed of Pax... Paxinarian. Okay. The, the Deed of Paxinarian by Elizabeth Moon. Okay, that and Heart of Virtue and Death Comes from the Archbishop. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind telling me just a little bit about yourself first? Yeah, um... Just general background information. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that if what you're you, asking for? Yeah, if you just want to give me some bullet points as to your life and just anything you want to add, that would be great. Okay. Um, I grew up in Emporia, Kansas. Um, I was an avid soccer player, an avid reader. Um, I kind of, I call myself a dilettante, a dabbler, because I am pretty good at a lot of things, but not really excellent at anything. Um, I, my family moved to Olathe, Kansas City area when I was in high school. Okay. Um, I graduated from a public high school and then went to Benedictine College, mm. um, which was really transformational for me because I think I realized that Jesus was a real person when I was about like a senior in high school. And that kind of changed um, my faith journey from being about like duty, checking the boxes, being a good girl, to actually wanting to pursue a relationship with God. Do you, do you mind if I ask, what brought that about? It's like, why specifically your senior year? Um, it was, I, I went to youth group for the first time, and I, I was a very indifferent youth group attendee. Um, I did not go every week, but, but when I would go, I would be challenged. I was very used to taking like the AP classes and, and knowing things. And so when I first came to youth group and they asked me like, what's your favorite Bible verse? I didn't have an answer and I was like, I'm mm. supposed to know that. Um, and, and having that expectation and knowing that I fell short of it, I was like, okay, now, now I need to know this. Um, and then learning what praise and worship was, going to adoration for the first time, having conversations with Maddie, my youth minister, and realizing um, there was like this wide world that I'd never even seen before. Um, that sense of discovery um, made me open to to seeing to seeing Jesus as a person. I, I want to ask just a little bit more about that and tie mm -hmm. it into your background. So you took a lot of AP classes. You're very bright. I didn't have AP available to me when mm -hmm. I was a student. That was just simply not a thing in the mm -hmm. town that I grew up in. Um, so. I'm not even quite sure how AP classes go. Are they all just kind of, I don't, for lack of a better word, everything has like a clear cut, solid answer? No. Um, I mean, I took AP U.S. History. I took AP Lit and AP Lang. Um, I did not take AP math courses because that was not my, uh, my talent. But it, it's just, it just pushed farther and reached higher and expected more okay. than the on-level classes. More more grappling with the mysteries of life, basically. Um, I don't know. I think it, the AP classes weren't afraid to ask those questions, but also um, just more exposure. Uh, in I, When I was in high school, the AP courses are very similar to AP courses now, where with on-level, you might move through three or four um, novels or books in a semester. Okay. Whereas in AP, it'd be five or six. Like okay. It just moves at a much more rapid pace. Okay, so it's faster. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so then you went to youth group, and you just were confronted with a bunch of mysteries, I guess, just things that you didn't quite have answers for, but it made you want to know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
So then when you went to Benedictine, how did Benedictine continue your transformation? Um, one, it was wonderful that the liberal arts expectation was there. And so I was expected and encouraged to take courses in a variety of ways. I took a class on stars and stellar systems. And I took another class on um, St. Paul's letters. And I took another class on Renaissance literature. And like all of this was expected and normal. And it was thrilling. Um, but also at the same time, I had roommates who went to daily mass. And I had forgotten that that was a thing. Um, I had other friends who would go to adoration and ask me for my prayer intentions. And I had never encountered that before. Yeah, just um, like your random friend who's the same age as you, maybe 19, mm -hmm. coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm going to adoration. What are your prayer intentions? Yeah, exactly. And it, and it was startling and it was beautiful. And having that be normalized at the same time as like this intellectual flowering was just, was beautiful and, and was formative for me. Yeah, I think that's a thing that we've, we've lost in a lot of segments of our culture is kind of a deep appreciation for the liberal arts. And I think mm -hmm. that perhaps if we had a better appreciation for the liberal arts, which is, I guess the way I would define it is it's the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, mm -hmm. the pursuit of knowledge, because knowledge can be beautiful because it can be enriching. Um, I think it's great that we have colleges that teach useful things that teach us how to build airplanes and operate on patients and build cars and that sort of thing. But it's also helpful just to experience the beauty of life um, and, and not necessarily have to have it add up to a job or a purpose. And, and I think that's the original function of the liberal arts school, in part. I, I'm not saying this as well as I would like to say it. Would you like to add a yeah, little bit so, to that? Um, I think the beauty of the liberal arts is that I was taking classes in so many different segments, um, different subject areas, and I would find echoes. Mm. So I would have like this message or this idea echoed in my philosophy course and my lit course and my practical speech course. Like this idea would echo through all of them. Isn't that beautiful? Um, yeah. Or I would be taking the math class that I had to take in college um, and I would still hear that same message echo into a lit class and well, lit class a lot because I was an English major. Um, and then also like my linguistics course, like you, you would hear echoes um, because there would be things that are true of humanity that would echo through. Um, and it's true, liberal arts, um, the goal is to be better humans yes. and not to be, be more useful. Yes. Though you kind of have to, like it's a two-pronged attack. Yeah. They, you, need, you need both. They, they absolutely, they're not mutually exclusive right. by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I don't know, maybe some people pretend that they are, but because people will say, when am I ever going to use this class in real life? And, you know, that's kind of a, hey, I want to get a practical education approach to things and and that's fine. I'm just I'm just personally 100% in favor of both. I'm in favor of the practical education and I'm in favor of the liberal arts and I love the liberal arts. So mm -hmm. I just I'm in awe of kind of of your background here. Um teaching then. Why teaching? You could have done a thousand things with your life. Why did you go into teaching? Um when I was in second grade, Mrs. Webker was an excellent teacher and I decided I wanted to be a teacher like her and like the student teacher I had that year. Okay. Um who just taught me, like, I, I have this distinct memory of the student teacher, and I don't remember her name now, teaching me to spell together by breaking it into its parts to get her. Okay. And I still, I still play that <laughs> trick in my head when I'm trying to spell together. Uh, I um, do too. And, like, having something, like, so small, but, like, so enduring um, made me want to be a teacher. And as I grew up every year, I wanted to be a teacher, but also maybe an astronaut. And a teacher, but also maybe a veterinarian. Um, but the teacher was consistent all the way through. Um, and even into like into high school, I was the vice president and then the president of the Future Teachers of America Club. Um, I was very set and determined to be a teacher. Um, and so God took me on a, on a strange journey that brought me back to teaching. Um, but I've, I've always been connected to working with teenagers and helping them discover discover deeper things. I love that. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I don't want to try to summarize or add to that. That was just so beautiful what you just said. Um, I just have a completely random question. Can you pick teachers out of a crowd? Oh, like when you go to someone... a restaurant or just any place, can you pick, can you, cause sometimes I feel like I can. I, I don't know. 
Um, I do tend to get along well with teachers, like my roommate is a teacher, but um, I don't I don't know that I can. Yeah, this is, I'm sorry, it's just a goofy yeah. thing that's in my head, but you certainly look like a teacher to me. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, okay, two last questions about teaching, then let's get into books if that's okay. Um, what do you love the most about it, and what do you find to be the most challenging about it? Um, I think the same answer for both questions is people. <laughs> um, people are, especially teenagers, are weird and wonderful and a challenge. Um, I love working with teenagers because they are still very open to being challenged and um, to being corrected and to being formed. Um, like they, they know they are growing and they desire growth. Um, and I think sometimes adults can lose that. That's um, for sure. But, um, and I think the challenge is that that is hard and people resist it and also, um, can, can resist it with, with snark and shutting down and things that are, it's just hard sometimes. Right, right. That teens sometimes can channel their, their inner rigid person mm -hmm. and just be snarky or, or quiet or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, the reason that I still want to be a teacher is that um, though that is true, like the beauty of teaching and having those moments of like the conversation when we're talking about Lord of the Flies and we talk about like, what does it mean to be human? And are, are humans at our core, are we evil or are we good? And how do we know that? Um, and having a debate happen where like one student is shaped by the point of view of another one and being able to mm. almost like... Um, the conductor of an orchestra like guide that so that there's revelation on both sides like that's beautiful Man. and like the excitement like that's it's rare right like you would get that like maybe once a month to have like that just ring of, of beauty um, because they come to something new that's make that makes it worth it wow you you express yourself just so beautifully I loved ring of beauty and then also too just that insight that flashes on both sides mm -hmm. that's just i want to sit in in your class next time you discuss the lord <laughs> of the flies because well i just want to tell kind of a similar story i was teaching young goodman brown which is by hawthorne and at in this story um the character goes off into the woods on an evil purpose that's what mm -hmm. hawthorne says he's going in there on an evil purpose hawthorne never says what the purpose is the guy winds up at a black mass at midnight and then he finds everybody he's ever loved and respected there at the Black Mass, worshiping Satan, including his pretty young wife, but all the deacons, all the teachers, just all the good people that he just always admired. Everybody's there. And then he wakes up. And then Hawthorne asks, was it a dream or was it not a dream? And since he wrote the story in, I don't know, 1840, maybe that was the first, hey, was it a dream story? So it really was not a reader cheat or a plot cheat because it was kind of the first go at this but but there's a larger question which is are human beings good or are human beings evil and just i guess like lord of the flies mm -hmm. but what i kind of found in class was a lot of people really did not want to consider the idea that well maybe human beings are evil they just kind of wanted to step away from that and they just said no it's young goodman brown's fault he's just this odd job who goes out in the woods, maybe hit his head on a branch and, you know, had a bad dream. And then he turns into a sourpuss for the next 50 years of his life. So it's his fault. They just wanted to pin it all up in one guy. But I mean, but the mystery of sin is a real mystery, right? And it's, it's something that ought to be wrestled with because we all have like that brokenness in our heart where we desire things we know are not good for us and good for other people. And so that, that struggle with sin in our own hearts and the struggle with the evil we see done against others outside of us, like that, that struggle with evil, the problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis put it, um, is, is a real thing and ought to be wrestled with. I, I think it should be. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was interesting that the class would oftentimes split into one group saying, well, evil does exist. Some people do give themselves over to evil. Yes. We do have our Stalins and Charles Mansons of the world. And, uh, and we all do evil things from time to time, and we have to face it. That was kind of one group. Then the other group would basically say, no, 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 he's just a one-off. He's just a loon, and we can just dump it all off on him. I just 
thought just the denial aspect of it was mm -hmm. so interesting. Well, but I think that that first group, um, I so one of the things that I came into in youth ministry is that a lot of students want to um, say like, well, I'm not Hitler, but I'm not Mother Teresa. But as long as I'm not Hitler, I'm okay. <laughs> okay. Right? And so, so I think the danger in saying that there's, like, as you said, um, Charles Manson's or Stalin's. Stalin's, Pol Pot, Idi right? Amin, all these people. Right? But the danger of saying, like, that is the extreme is being like, actually, but you have to, you have to see the truth in that there is a temptation to sin in all of us. That's right. Right? There's a concupiscence, like a... Um, I use the, the analogy of a, of a paperclip. Okay. Right? It, it's bent, and you can try to straighten it, but it's, mm. it's bent, and it takes a lot of effort or grace, actually grace, but um, because it takes heat and outside force to make it all the way straight, right? Um, but it takes a lot for a paperclip to be straight. Um, that, that bent, that struggle to be straight, that is a struggle against concupiscence. I love that. Um Clinical psychologist Jordan B. Peterson likes to say that if you study groups like the Nazis or the Soviets or, I guess, the leadership of the North Koreans, and if you don't see yourself sometimes as the perpetrator and not always as the victim, then you are just completely misreading the story. That sometimes it might be legitimate to read yourself into the role of the victim and say, I would never do anything like that, but we have to be honest and say, we have it within us to be the perpetrator of these events. And, and I, I just love what you said, that God can come in and can rescue us from our own, our own fallen human nature. Right, but also there needs to be, like, um, we have to be on guard against this in our own hearts because if you aren't on guard against it, then you fall into it easily. Yes. Um, because it's not that the entire German people was evil. Right. It's that they, they didn't guard themselves against that that draw towards the easy way out. That's absolutely right? true. Absolutely and, true. And and that means like the the heroic people who stood against it, like it, it does take heroism to go against the crowd. That's it does. And it, to stand for truth. It does. And just another thing that I can think about in this subject is right now I'm reading a book by a lady who escaped from North Korea. And I'm about halfway through the book and Honestly, it's the most horrific thing I think I've ever read. And I teach a class in World War II and on the Cold War. So I guess I'm used to reading things about atrocities and things like that. And, and this poor girl, I mean, was about 13 when she escaped and she just went through hell. Then she got to China and then she was sold into slavery. Her mother was sold into slavery. And then things just got worse, essentially. Um, and then she pointed out that... Solzhenitsyn was basically right. You know, she asked, why is North Korea such a bad place? Why is starvation the norm? Why do we have a cult where we worship the leader of the country? Why is there secret police knocking on everybody's door all the time? She said, well, you know, good people must have done nothing about three generations ago. They just thought, hey, somebody else will handle this. I, I can't step out and do anything about this. And then three generations later, that's where they were at. And that's exactly what Solzhenitsyn said about the Soviet Union, too, as well. He said, the first time the secret police came to drag away your father or your mother, we should have met them with pickaxes and shovels. But we didn't. We just acquiesced. And then look what we wound up with. Sorry, I, I think I took things at a very dark turn here. But I guess we started talking about evil, and then I just naturally went to, to what I went to. Sorry about that. No, it's okay, but because I think that um, the way to guard against that is like I mean we do need at times sweeping social change, but like for me the fight that I have to fight is within my own heart. That's right. right? To to be a person who is, God willing, capable of that heroism, because so many times throughout human history you can see the difference that one person makes. Yeah. Right. Like they they that one person becomes a pivot point. Um, around which change can happen. Um, and that faceless masses don't actually change things. Right. Simple individuals. Individuals change things. Change things. And so, like, my goal, like, my duty is to, to be formed um, through friendships, through what I read, through um, the work that I do is to, to choose to form myself 
um, to be a person of virtue and goodness who follows the Lord. Amen. 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 I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into books then, because okay. we're talking about formation. Um, you listed deed of pack. Pack scenario. I'm yes. go- I'm gonna learn it eventually. Um, okay, so it was pivotal for you. Yeah, and it's it. It, it seems kind of silly now, and it's always hard to describe a fantasy or a sci-fi novel. I remember growing up, because I started reading science fiction with Robert Heinlein when I was, I think I'm saying that, Roman Heinlein. Yeah, that's um, right, Heinlein. Um, I started, I read my first science fiction novel when I was in fifth grade, and I remember my children's librarian taking me over and being like, Red Planet, I think you'd like this. <laughs> um, and and I really got into it, and I haunted that section at the public library, and and whenever I'd like get so excited about a book and I'd be telling my mom about it, I remember how the more it came out of my mouth, the more nonsens- nonsensical it sounded because you have to suspend disbelief. You do. Um, and you, you have do. to kind of inhabit the world that the author creates. Yeah. Um, because you could wind up with, I don't know, spaceships and hobbits and, and time travel. And, and, and battles. Yeah. So, right. Um, yeah. But The Dean of Paxinarian by Elizabeth Moon is... Um, it's a trilogy okay. um, about a character named Paxnarian Dorthan's daughter. Okay. And she, um, oh, this is, I mean, this is, I know this is going to sound a little bit like nonsense, but it's so good. You know, and, the thing is, I'm, just let me interrupt for a second. My mom was a high school librarian, mm-hmm. and she said all of the smartest kids always checked out the science fiction and fantasy. So yeah. she, she had the bird's eye view <laughs> of the whole thing. The smartest person I know got his PhD in astrophysics and was given a free ride all the way through. Now he's helping Ford build electric cars and he's testified before Congress and seen the videotape explaining what Ford is up to. He read Lord of the Rings about five times. So, so anyway. Okay. So the beauty of this book is that um, it is epic fantasy. And so there are dwarves and there are wizards and there's our paladins that fight for the gods, like all of this. Um, but I think the reason I loved it and that it really formed me in, I think I read it first as a freshman in high school, that she genuinely battles good and evil. Mm. And that Elizabeth Moon is not afraid in her novel to represent evil. Like through torture, through um, like the, the evils um, that she sees, like there's there's scheming behind the scenes, there's gossip, there's those small evils that add up to create a situation that is horrible, um, and there's also the overt like violence against another, and and both of those evils are combated within her book, um, and I think recognize seeing an author not shy away from um, acknowledging those evils, but also the need to fight them. Um, having a hero be a young girl who, like, I think she's 17 at the beginning of the trilogy. And you were about 14 when you read mm-hmm. this. Um, having her um, grow in as a mercenary through, like, these practical skills. So, like, practical skills are yeah. important to, to grow into who you are meant to be. Yeah. Um, to see her dream big and pursue that. To see her go through real authentic difficulty, um, but continue to pursue her dream. And that part of her dream is to defend the innocent um, and have have those be presented as like this epic adventure that someone not too terribly different from me because the main character and the first book of the trilogy is called Sheep Farmer's Daughter. Okay. Like she's she's not special but yet she's also chosen and she pursues goodness all the way to the end to the point of being like a legend because she stands against the, the most terrible evil. Um, what, what do you think makes her into a legend? I mean, is it the fact that she just is honest and that she just refuses to lie and therefore she just puts herself in these situations where she will be defending people? What, what is it that makes her go from ordinary person, farmer's daughter, to heroine? Um, I think, I mean, it is, it is, like a thousand pages that the story develops. So, okay. Um, hard, a little hard to summarize. It's a good science fiction trilogy. Uh, fantasy trilogy, but yeah, yeah, yeah very good. Um, I think the fact that she is a good character and that you can see that some of her traits, like honesty, um, 
are very good for her, but also are detractors for her. Elizabeth Moon is really creating good at creating a complex character because her honesty means that she doesn't see the dishonesty in others. Oh. Her desire for goodness means that she pursues it, but it also means that she sees only the goodness of others, which blinds her oh. to sometimes their true motives. Okay, so she's a little naive as yeah. a 17-year-old. Yeah. Got it. Um, like U.S. Grant. They always said you can't cheat an honest man, and then Grant came along and was totally honest and got cheated all the time. I mean, yeah. And and it shows that like strengths can also be weaknesses, but that doesn't mean mm. you should turn away from them. Right. Um, yeah, and I think like over time, as she's trusted with more, and then fulfills those missions she's given, those expectations she's given, um, she's able to, to grow enough um, to battle harder things and to go deeper into what she's called to do. Um, I don't know, like, the, the way that she becomes a legend is what happens over a thousand pages. I love it. Um, but yeah, the author's really good at showing authentic growth in her. Like, she, she does grow as a person, which makes her capable of it. So if she, as like the 17-year-old at the beginning of um, the first novel, she, she wasn't capable of what she was by the end. She had to grow into it. Is this a series that you've reread? Oh, yeah. I think I reread reread it like every other year or so. Every, every how often? Um, every two years. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's just really great. Um, is there anything else that we want to add on that one, or are we, or are we good to go? Good. Okay, okay. Let's get into Heart of Virtue by Donald DeMarco. And I, I looked it up, and I just thought it was fascinating, but I thought it would be better if you described it. Um, so it's not a novel. It's um, nonfiction. And Donald DeMarco, um, in it, describes multiple virtues. And in each chapter, about is each chapter features a different virtue. Um, and in it, he, he describes it, and he, he gives an explanation of it, but more importantly, he illustrates it through a story about a real person um, who exhibited that virtue. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I looked up the 28 virtues that are in the list here, and uh, they are care, chastity, compassion, courage, courtesy, determination, faith, fidelity, generosity, graciousness, gratitude, holiness, hope, Humility, integrity, justice, loyalty, meekness, mercy, mirthfulness, modesty, patience, piety, prudence, reverence, sincerity, temperance, and wisdom. And yet it said with them that the heart of every single virtue is love. What is love? What a deep question. Also, every time I hear that question, I hear the song, What is love? (laughs) I know. Yeah. Um... I think the catechism answer is um, desiring the good for another. Okay. Um, and I think that... Doing what's in the best interest of the other person, as some people would phrase it. I, yeah, but not just like best interest, like, but really like the good. Because like, God is good, truth, beauty. Um, and so like, ultimately what you want is for them to be close to God. Not something that's necessarily in their immediate best interest. Right, not immediate best interest, but best best interest. Right, like long term best interest. We've talked about how like um, that at times it's more merciful and more good for a student for them to fail. Oh, for sure. A class, which for sure. feels terrible as a teacher. No, it it does. Right? Like, and we go to such extremes, like meeting with them after class, giving them deadlines, like working with them so much. And then to have a student still fail feels like defeat for us. It, it does. It feels terrible for them. But but it's more merciful sometimes to allow them to fail because it means that, one, they learn an important lesson, but also maybe it, it provides evidence that they need different help. Um, it gives them different opportunities. Um, so, yeah. So and, and F is information. You know, I, I kind of view an F as the same thing as a symptom whenever a person has something wrong with their body. You know, a symptom is essentially information. Your body is trying to communicate something to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's saying stop doing something, or maybe it's saying start doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, I just view an F as information. Maybe it's saying, you know, they keep putting you in math classes, but you don't really like math. Maybe you'd work harder at something else. Mm-hmm. That, that's just, I guess, one take that I have on, on Fs, essentially. Yeah. I also kind of think... 
with Evs that there's a lot of ways to fail in life. You could be in a horrible car accident and hurt another person. You could, I don't know, you could shatter your relationships. You could be completely irresponsible with money. You could get fired from 10 jobs in a row. Um, so there's lots of ways to fail. An F in algebra class is a pretty minor fail, I think, by comparison. But it lets people know that life is real, I yeah. think. So just, just a few random thoughts on, on that. But okay, let's get back to part of virtues. Sorry, I didn't mean to detract for so long. Do you want to pick one or two of the virtues and just tell one or two of the stories that's, that's in it? Um, I remember meekness as being the one that, that hit me most deeply, but I don't remember. It's, it's been a long enough time since okay. I read it that I wouldn't accurately tell the stories. Okay. Um, but, but why this was a, a life-changing book for me was I had just graduated college. And I was really working intently on growing as a person. Okay. And I remember um, like seeing these vices, these sins I was battling as weeds. And I kept trying to pull them and kept mm. trying to pull them and just was kind of in this like dark place because I couldn't fix it. Okay. Um, fighting, I, fighting very hard with yourself. Yeah. Like fighting, fighting those sinful tendencies in my heart um, and feeling like a failure because I couldn't fix it. And I could pray as hard as I could for God to change it. And I just wasn't getting better. Okay. Um, and then a friend recommended this book to me. Okay. And I read it and it was like this, this, this switch flipped. And I realized that it wasn't about um, pulling out the weeds. It was planting something beautiful in its place. Oh. Um, I love to garden. So garden metaphors make sense to me. That um, if, I, if I plant a flower, um, then that growth of that flower and the more it grows the less space underneath it for there are for it, to it grow. crowds out the weed yeah so the the good flower crowds out the weed right can you give me a practical example not necessarily from your life but just just how would that work how do i get rid of a bad habit by replacing it i'm hearing i guess replace it plants a new seed yeah so um oh i feel kind of on the spot what else what could i talk about um, so if I find that I'm a selfish person, okay, right, which all of us struggle with selfishness to yeah. some extent, um, and I want to decrease selfishness, okay, that means actually increasing generosity, oh, okay, and so I should be finding small ways to be more generous, oh, and rather than trying to pull out selfish tendencies, which at some point just becomes destructive, yeah. self-destructive. Yeah. Um, if I look for small ways to be generous okay. and I give like a dollar more at the Sunday collection than I thought I would, um, or I, um, am generous with my time and I, even though I have an appointment, I like take a moment more to finish the conversation because that person's worth it. Um, like those, those moments of generosity. And so if I'm looking for generosity rather than concentrating on selfishness, I'm actually going to be less selfish. That's beautiful. It's the more effective way um, to become a better person. I love it. Um, I love it. Yeah, and the same is true with, um, I think, with any of the sins. Like, if I want to be less prideful, that means I need to be more humble. Okay. Um, and so I can look for ways to be less prideful. Um, but I, if I'm concentrating more on the humility, it's going to have the effect of being less how do I concentrate more on humility? This was the virtue. I remember C.S. Lewis saying this was the one he always, it always tripped him up. He always just felt like, I have no idea how to be less prideful and more humble. Um, That's okay. what he said. So little things like um, not having the final word. Oh. And so, so when you do your examination of conscience at the end of the day, okay. this is kind of like an Ignatian method of, of examination of conscience. Yeah. You choose... Three expressions of pride that you want to decrease and three expressions of humility that you want to increase. Mm. And that's what you concentrate on in your examination. Okay. And so um, did I have the last word in a, in a conversation? I'm going to look to decrease that. Um, did I... Um, expressions of humility. Praying something simple like the litany of humility. Okay. Um, looking for opportunities to I mean because humility is really living in the truth and so recognizing someone else's goodness mm. um, 
Because pa- paying a sincere compliment to somebody. Right, like, yeah. And then if you're recognizing someone else's goodness, you don't need to defend yourself by, like, making yourself feel like you're higher than them. Yeah. Right? Because someone else can be good in a different way than you're good. Yeah. And, and there's beauty in recognizing that. So if I, if I think somebody else is doing a good job, maybe don't just think it. Maybe actually tell them. Yeah. I don't lose anything just because somebody else is standing a little taller. Right. And if you, and if you speak the truth, yeah. um, and if you're genuinely like, recognizing their goodness, it doesn't mean that I'm less good because someone else is good. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I love many things that you said, but one beautiful thing I really enjoyed was that humility lives in the truth. Mm-hmm. I believe that's how you phrased it. So it's not the same thing as, say, being falsely modest which is not living in the truth, and it's not the same thing as being humiliated right. by somebody. Perhaps exactly. being humiliated might lead to humility, but it's really a terrible way to get there. Right. There's some quote, I forget who it's from, that says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's really good. That's really good. Well, I think I'm going to have to go out and read this book. I think it would really help me it's an awful lot. Book. Yeah. Um, let's, let's shift to the final book, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, Death Comes from the Archbishop. For the Archbishop. For the Archbishop, which I'm embarrassed to say I've never read. I, I've never, I think I read one short story by Will Kapler. I was an English major as well. Then I picked up a master's degree in English, and, and I just don't know how I've never managed to be in a course where they had Will Kapler, but I can't pin it all on my instructors. I've had a lot of time. I should have read Will Kapler by now. I mean, everybody just says she's absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. So could you tell me a little bit about this book? Um, wherever you want to be, plot, character setting, theme, mm-hmm. just wherever you want to be. Um, I remember when I was in high school, a junior in high school, I was required to read My Antonia by Willa Kapler, and I did not have an appreciation for it. Um, because the beauty of, of Willa Cather as an author is that she really trusts her reader. And so she, she has this like vivid living description um, and she will let you experience things as a reader, but she, she's the least predictable author I know. Mm. Um, she's not trying to surprise you. She's just showing you these experiences and letting you gather them and form your impression. And it's amazing. She's an incredibly skilled writer. Um, Death Comes for the Archbishop is um, pivotal for me because of, of the timing of it. Um, it's something that I, I during um, the COVID stay-at-home order, we started a Zoom book club just because we were desperate for human companionship. Right. Um, and we started by reading Flannery O'Connor, and then we shifted, and we eventually ended up reading Willa Cather, Death Comes for the Archbishop. Um, and I think... It's so such an interesting book because it pulls so many things together. Um, it's based on real people. The first she kind of conflates the first three bishops of the Santa Fe diocese, okay, which was an incredibly large tract of land, um, and she tells like true pieces of it in the course of her novel. The fact that the bishop, the first bishop of Santa Fe, um, was a French missionary serving in Ohio, and it took him almost a year. To get to his diocese because he had to take the Mississippi down to New Orleans. He had to take a wagon train across all of Texas (laughs) to finally get there. Okay. And then when he got to Santa Fe, they didn't believe him when he said he was the bishop. And so he had to travel all the way to Durango, Mexico in order to get the paperwork to prove to his priests in his diocese that he was the bishop. Who did they think he was? I mean, if, if you show up, I don't know, talking and sounding I mean, and looking like a bishop, and if you have the education and you start rattling off... I mean, off. but he was a young missionary, a young okay. French missionary, and this is Santa Fe, which was owned by Mexico for a very long time. Okay. Um, and then it became American, which is what gave the opportunity to form the new diocese, because before it was all led by the Bishop of Durango, Mexico, which meant that there was it was impossible for that bishop to actually visit all of his diocese. So that means when he came to Santa Fe, he encountered like um, some priests kind of running their own little world. Okay. Um, he also encountered like hardworking missionaries who were like just in it for the Lord. Um, he encountered some people who had not had their marriages blessed or their children baptized 
for the last decade because okay. there weren't enough priests. And so, like, for him to encounter this, and so... The it really was kind of the Wild West, but I guess... It was, ca- literally, the yeah, Wild West. Yeah, literally the Wild West, yeah. in this case, Catholic style. Yeah. Um, and so, like, the one of the beauties of the novel is that it's helping me understand the correspondence of, like, my faith to history and to reality. Okay. Um, and it's lovely to encounter, but really what what has done for me in the last year or two is that this book club has helped me re-encounter my love for literature. Hmm. Um, not just like the fun books I read to like pass the time or the books I read because I have to teach them, um, but to read something that is excellent purely for the enjoyment of it and, and to enjoy it with other people. Like that's, it, it's just been a gift. And, and this book in particular has done that for me because she's just so good at conveying beauty. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm not sure even what to ask other than is there anything about the book that I should ask at this point that I have not? No, I mean, I'm not even finished with the book yet. Like, I, I haven't seen the Archbishop die. Okay. Um, so, like, I don't... Oh, spoil no, the ending no for spoilers. everybody, right? Like, I can't. No, it's in I the mean, title. It's like the death, title's literally it's like death, death of a salesman. The you know, you get to the you end of the... You know he dies. And then you're like, what a shock. Right, and so really, Cather, because she trusts her reader, she has, like, already... I'm, like, two-thirds through the book hinted at two or three ways, like, characters or situations that could lead to the Archbishop's oh. death, but she hasn't said anything yet. Like, it's so, <laughs> so good. So you got the suspense going mm-hmm. as well. It's right. got all this beauty, and it's got this mystery, and why don't these priests believe him? And, well, we can kind of sort of see why they don't believe him, but still, why don't they believe him? And we know he's going to die, but now there's, like, two or three different situations that it could be the, the event. Right, but, but the... the skill with which Willa, Willa Cather re- writes this is that she's not she's giving us like each chapter is really its own vignette where like you live in this situation and then you move to the next one okay and so like the reader is the one that has to tie it together and figure mm. out like how the story unfolds she's not telling us a story she's giving us snapshots of his experience okay um so it's yeah super she's super the well. show not tell author very much all so. the way okay um well Let's kind of shift to books and then just life overall, because just a few minutes ago, you were discussing how experiencing literature and deeply loving it and then being able to share it with other people just electrifies you. It just Mm -hmm. sets you on fire in in just a gorgeous, beautiful way. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because my mom was a librarian and everybody in my family likes to read, but I guess I feel really bad for people who don't understand that books can be pivotal. I, I just, uh, books can change your life for the better. I, I feel like they can change your mind. They can change your heart. They can just change positively everything. So you're an English teacher. How do we get this across to people? Well, I, I think books are a true gift. Um, because, and I, I think I tell my students this at the beginning of the year, because um, I try to preempt... So I teach Spanish as well. Mm-hmm. And I try to preempt the English kids being like, well, we already speak English. Why do we need to take an English class? Um, Do they say that? Um, yeah. That's, that was probably funny the first time you heard it. Teenagers can be snarky. But, but also, like, there's a real question there, right? Like, they're, they're, they're being snarky and trying to, like, deflect or whatever because they don't love English. But, but there's a real question there. Um, and they're like, what is this for? Because students who ask that usually found, find reading difficult. And so, like, if, if they are going to fight the fight to understand and read this enough to understand it, there's got to be a good reason. There's got to be a payoff for them to fight that hard over something or in, to do something. Yeah. Um, there's got to be a, a wonderful reward right. at the end of all this hard work. Right. And for me, like reading it came very easily to me. Like I, my mom tells stories of me walking up to her as a two-year-old, like dragging books behind me because I wanted her to read to me. So reading came very naturally to me. And I never understood that struggle until I took advanced lit classes in Spanish. And so oh. having to read no- novels in Spanish and having to struggle through the vocabulary and, and like um, understand a sentence before I had to, could go back and reread the paragraph to understand the whole. Like that's, when you, when you fight that fight, you, you want to pay off for you, that. You do, you do. Um, and you so do. taking that really helped me experience what some of my students go through when they read their novels in English. Um, 
And so you have a lot of deep sympathy with people who truly struggle to understand. Right. And it's, and some people just don't like to read because it's hard. Right. Um, and so convincing students that like, this is worthwhile, it's worth doing the hard thing. Like you will become a better person in this way. You will understand we can have this conversation because you do this hard thing. Um, and, and helping students see like that when we read Shakespeare's The Tempest and Shakespeare is really hard and I'm, and I make sure I tell them that like this, you're not dumb for struggling to understand Shakespeare. Shakespeare's just hard. Um, but struggling through it means that we can have conversations about power. It means we can have conversations about, um, what is the just way to use power and whether power corrupts? Mm. Um, and what does that mean for, like we had a Socratic seminar and I had a student, I had a group of students come to an understanding about the democratic system of government because they came to understand through the literature that they read that um, we all have free choice. And so we give a measure of our power of choice to someone else. Um, and we have to trust them to represent us in that. And to have that conversation be reached independently by students because they read The Tempest by Shakespeare is golden. Right. Right? It's just golden. And and they have to see that that will be the payoff. Right? That, that it is worth going through the struggle for that. Well, once they have one payoff like that, mm -hmm. then they pretty much want a second one. And they want a third one. And you can just turn them into little Shakespeare junkies. I mean... I mean, that's not true for all kids. No. But there is that hope, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, or at least that they finish the unit being like, okay, so I don't hate Shakespeare. Well, and if not Shakespeare, then maybe some of the other authors that right. you, you explore. Right, and, and after we read Shakespeare, reading Dante's Inferno and his poetic forms is way easier. And so then they see that payoff, too, in their skill growth. Um, but no, like, I, I think, one, helping students see that there, there's a bigger picture, like there's a reason... There's, um, like, talking about the nature of human beings. Like, what does it mean to be a hero and who is worthy of being mm. held up as a hero? Like, having those conversations make the difficult thing kind of have an, a payout that they see. Um, but also, like, me recognizing that, like, maybe they're not going to see that deep truth, that deep beauty that I see um, naturally, but in literature. But maybe they see it somewhere else. And recognizing the goodness of where they see it, right? Like that's that's important. Yeah, maybe they don't see these deep themes, or maybe they don't see beauty in literature, but they might. They can be led into it, but they naturally. can be led. But yeah. maybe they'll encounter it. Who knows? In physics, or sports, or mm -hmm. math, or something else. It's the echoes that I was talking about earlier. That that if you if you help them start to see like the deeper meanings and things, then they can see those echoes in these different experiences in life. I love that whole idea of echoes, and, and I think that's really one of the beating hearts of the liberal arts in the first place is just, that's what happens. You take a class in stargazing, and then you take another class in literature, and then you take a third class in chemistry, and you start to see connections mm -hmm. between things. You maybe begin to see the world as a single significant whole somehow or another. So you said so many beautiful things in there. Um, I just want to ask maybe one last question along these lines, and it's about you as a teacher, but also just about you as a person. What do you ultimately hope to achieve? Heaven. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's for you personally. I mean, that's, that is the ultimate goal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then for, for your students and for, maybe you've already kind of answered this. You want them to see beauty. Is there anything else I should have asked? I mean, because like, because if you recognize God is transcendent, right? And those like transcendentals of, of goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, if you recognize that God is not just having those things, but is those things in himself, um, then that means that I give my students a glimpse of God mm. or of heaven, which is unity with God. I give them a glimpse of it when I help them encounter truth or goodness or beauty. Okay. Right. And so that's like the ultimate motivator. Um, yeah, I want them to grow in writing skills. I want them to know how to use a comma so that they can com communicate better. Um, I want them to be able to put together sentences that aren't nonsense. I want them to be able to understand how to recognize a theme in a poem. Um, yeah, I want all of those practicalities, but what those practical things are um, 
are in building of a foundation for them to understand those transcendentals Love and it. to communicate them with others. It's beautiful. beautiful. I, I overused that word, but that was beautiful. I mean, beauty is the idea. Okay. Um, maybe just a few last questions. Stacy. advice. What advice would you have for a young English teacher, maybe 22, who is just getting started in the world of teaching? I, oh, wow. I saw that you wrote that question. I, I wasn't really ready for that. Um, I think have a bigger motive. Like f find something that motivates you that's, that's beyond the immediate because um, whether you're teaching middle schoolers religion or um, sophomores English or um, whatever it is, if, if your motive is to like see your kids bloom, it may not happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like a lot of what teachers do is plant seeds. That's true. Right, like... We may um, never see... Well, yeah, we most likely will not see the results. My second grade student teacher who taught me how to spell together, like, she did not realize that that was the thing that would stick with me. Um, and, like, that's... I mean, that's why I pray to the Holy Spirit when I teach because I, I have no control over what they hear. Um, and so there, there's a lot of hope in teaching that the seeds I plant, the, the words that I speak and spread scattershot over the students, that something will stick, that will, that will matter. Um, and so like my bigger motivation like this year was I, I decided that I was going to enjoy my kids, that I, like that was my overarching goal, that I wasn't going to, um, when, when that student um, was tardy for the fifth time um, that week, that I would choose to find it silly and ridiculous rather than annoying and disrespectful. Um, and like choosing that perspective means that I approach the student mm. differently, which means I, I genuinely enjoy my job more. Right. Um, because you don't get a lot of immediate payout. Thank you, Stacy. This yeah. was absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad. I really appreciate it.